Welcome to the Cornerstone Church Podcast. We are glad you are taking advantage of this resource. If you would like to find out more information about our church or connect with us, go to cornerstonebv.org. You can also check us out on our Facebook page, at CornerstoneBV. We hope that the message today impacts your life and draws you closer in your walk with Christ. So as elders, we have a text chain between all of us. And on Tuesday morning this week, I got a text, eh, kind of mid-morning from Pastor Jamie, letting us know that, not for the first time, that he had tested positive for COVID again. So he is fine. Uh, He is over his symptoms, lacking a little bit of energy, but he's fine, but wasn't going to be here with us this morning because of that. So he threw it out there, like, by the way, Pastor Bob's on vacation, and, you know, we can do a longer communion, I could maybe record something for 10 minutes, and I'm thinking, you haven't done anything in 10 minutes in your life, like, let's be honest, I mean, uh, but, so I said, I, I, I can fill in and do it, I, I, oddly enough, had a pretty open Friday, Saturday on my schedule, and I said, I, I can jump in and do that, but, and I always really appreciate the chance to, to, to share with you, but I got to admit, there was part of me that didn't want to, because it's, I've, just really had a lot of discouragement lately. Like we're, we're in a world where politically there's nothing good going on. I mean, even when you want somebody to win, you're really rooting for lesser of evils. You're not going like, oh, these are amazing humans, right? We're going, well, the other side's worse, regardless of where you sit with that, right? And, you know, economically, we're kind of a mess right now. Like the economy's in a recession. The, you know, there's, there's concerns in Europe. I mean, the inflation. And then you have socially, there's just all kinds of like just craziness going on around us. And it's easy to be discouraged, like where is this going, right? What is the world that we're living in going to be like for our kids or grandkids or whatever, right? So it, it, it's easy to be discouraged. And then, you know, I, I, I'm in a season of work where I'm like I'm working more hours than I probably should. And I feel like no matter what I do, there's always more that needs to get done. And I can never quite dig out from it. Uh, my personal study, I'm going through the book of Ezekiel. I don't recommend that when you're looking for encouragement, right? You read through Ezekiel, the, every chapter is like, woe to these people, right? Like it, in, well, the first half is mostly just these judgments that are pending against Israel for their rebellion against God. And then the second half is a lot of, here's what's wrong with all the countries around you, and this is what's going to happen to them. And most of the prophets, when you read them, you have the, the judgment pronounced, and then you have on the back end of it, you have this, well, here's what God's going to do to restore. There's not a lot of that in Ezekiel. It's mostly bad news through Ezekiel. So I've been reading through that, and I just, and I said, okay, well, you know, I'll, I'll still do this, but what, what's my passage? Well, you got Simon the magician. So I have the guy that, that ditches the church and turns his back on God, Right? I'm like, can I get like the, the, the Disney world, like everything works out in the end passage where everybody's happy and like all's good? No, no, not today. So, but as I, as I began studying and I did my work in preparation for this weekend, I really was encouraged. I actually, what I found was that we're, we're digging into a church in Samaria here and, and that's where, where Simon's story takes place. But we're, we're digging into a church that has a growing body of believers. They're, they're exhibited this with joy throughout their church. They're, there's good leadership in their church, and they're reaching the world around them. 
So it actually, I actually gained encouragement even in the midst of being in a pretty lost world that they could still be that light and, and we can be the same. So what I want to do is, is real briefly kind of do this in three parts to kind of a real quick synopsis of what we learned last week because I think it sets the context for what we're studying today. I want to spend some time going through our passage in Acts chapter 8 and then go through five things that I think that we want to get out of, like what do we learn about the gospel from this passage. So last week we, we looked at the beginning of Acts chapter 8. It was not me, but this, as a sermon what we did. And, and we, we met Philip again, who was introduced to us in chapter 6 as one of these wise men appointed as our deacon precursors. And now we see him also leading, like we saw Stephen leading. And what we see is, is that first the gospel is to be shared. So when Stephen was stoned a couple weeks ago, that Pastor Bob was preaching on and I mentioned when I did my last sermon, that was actually the start of the church leaving and going beyond Jerusalem, right? The church scattered after that because that's their, their first persecution. So they started going beyond, and what we see here in Acts 8 is that they're, they're in Samaria. And if we go back to Acts chapter 1, we, this shouldn't surprise us, because we got that you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and all Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So we're seeing the Samaria part actually play out here. And so the gospel is not staying within just the, the Jewish community, but it's now going out to the Samaritans, which aren't exactly Gentiles either. We'll get into that in a minute. Um, but, you know, it's, it's moving beyond its traditional ethnic boundaries. And we see that the gospel is for the whole world, right? That it, that it won't actually stop there, that it's going to move beyond just, again, just Jews, just Jerusalem, into the Gentile world and really into the entirety of the world. And finally, we saw that the gospel comes in power, right? In Acts 8, 6 through 8, we see... The crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. So the gospel was changing the city of Samaria as Philip was bringing that message to them. We saw people coming to faith in Christ. We saw lame and paralyzed being healed. We, and we saw that exhibited with people being full of joy. So as, that's the context that we walk into now as we pick up in verse 9, if we could have that on our screen. So in verse, again, Acts 8, starting in verse 9. But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria saying that he himself was somebody great. That's just a little bit of hubris here, right? Simon goes around Samaria going, I'm pretty awesome. I'm great, right? That, that's probably your first warning that there's something wrong with Simon here. He, it's, you know, he's the one proclaiming that he's the great one. It's verse 10. They all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying, this man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. So not only did he call himself great, the people of, that, of Samaria called him great as well, and they actually attributed the power of God to him. Right? They actually thought, like, 
this guy is something special. And why? Because he did magic. So what's magic? Well, let's, let's do our, a magic trick. So we've got our handy-dandy piece of cloth here, right? And it's, it's a real piece of cloth. It's not just an illusion here, right? We have a real cloth. So what we do is we make it disappear. We've got to stuff it in here like it's got to get all the way in. Got it quite. And then you, what you got to do is go, and it's gone, right? You, you've made it disappear, right? But so where did it go, right? It's just because it's gone. It's magic. Symphony, you want to pull my finger? <laughs> oh, wait, what, do you, what do you have? Let me, what do you have there? Like, give me that. Give me that. No, you're really going to give it back. I, I got to show people. Right? It's a fake finger. Right? So I just stuff it in the fake finger and it disappears. Now, I'm not doing real magic. If I was doing real magic, I'd be a heretic and you'd probably have to stone me too. Right? So what I'm just doing is an illusion. But what Simon was doing was some element of real magic. He was drawing into a power that was not of God's, that was amazing the people around him. Because making that piece of cloth disappear into a, the fake finger is, is a parlor trick, right? It's, it's, it's a giant nothing. But what, what Simon was doing was something much more, what's much darker and, and inappropriate. Um, so, but again, he's credited with having this power by the people around him. So we go to verse 12. It says, but when they, the people of Samaria, believed Philip as he preached good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ... They were baptized, both men and women. So we start to see a bit of a problem here for, for, for Simon. Because Simon is like Mr. Rockstar in Samaria. And then Philip comes along and starts preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. And what happens? The power of God works in the people. And there's converts to the faith in Christ. Right? People were being baptized. What does this mean for Philip? Or for Simon, rather? They're not paying attention to him anymore. He's starting to lose his place. But we get a little bit of hope for Simon in verse 13 where it says, even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. So we have here, it says Simon actually believes Philip's message. And he submits to baptism. Our problem, though, is, as we're going to see, is that Simon believes but he's not converted. Like, there's an element of belief here, but it's not a saving, change-your-heart, new creation kind of belief. And I think we get a hint of that at the end of 13. It says, seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. It doesn't say, seeing the great and amazing, un- paralleled creator of the universe who sent his son to die for me, he was amazed. It says, seeing signs and wonders, he was amazed. Right? He's amazed at what Philip can do rather than what Philip was saying. 14. Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he, he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. So, I am not going to try to settle like the, the varying views of 
the Holy Spirit's action in Christians' lives across the last 2,000 years that churches have been talking and discussing that. But what I will say is here that there was a separation between their coming to faith in Samaria and their receipt of the Holy Spirit. And that is not the normal thing that you see in Scripture. You see that when we come to faith, that we are sealed with the Holy Spirit. And so why was that? I'd say, well, because primarily through the Old Testament, God dealt with the Jews. He wasn't dealing with the rest of the world. So now you have a time where the the message is moving beyond the Jewish population. It's moving to the Samaritans and eventually moves to the Gentiles. And what you see is that there's something here that God wants to validate that, yes, these are my people too. We are one church. So when Peter and John come down from Jerusalem to Samaria and they pray for them and they lay hands on them, that is a validation to Peter and John that, yes, the Samaritans are 100% welcome into this church, into one body for all time. And it is also a validation to the Samaritans that we're no different than they are either. There is no, well, we got the Jerusalem church, which is the 1A Christians, and then we got the B-level Christians down in Samaria. There's none of that. There is an equal footing for Jews, Samaritans, and in Acts chapter 10, we'll see Gentiles as well. It is one church. And we see Simon all along, right? Because there was some manifestation of the Spirit when the Holy Spirit comes on them. It was, it was obvious to all those that were there. The passage doesn't get into exactly what that was or how that was done. Frankly, that's not really that important, just that it was obvious that the Holy Spirit had come upon the Samaritan believers. In verse 18, Simon starts to get something turning in his head, going, I think I've got an opportunity here. He says, now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. So, Simon, this is like the obvious, right? Simon just doesn't get it. You know, there's no like, oh wow, we can reach people and save people's souls here. He's going, I got a business opportunity. If I buy this ability of giving the Holy Spirit, what's that going to mean for my following here? All these people that are kind of leaving me and going over to Philip, maybe I can get some of that back. I can get some of that power, that influence, that status, that following, and maybe even turn a profit by controlling the Holy Spirit. Now, in hindsight, we look at it going, well, that's pretty stupid. Who's going to fall for that? Like, who would ever think that? But he was in the mindset of being a magician. And he's looking at this as Peter and John have better magic than I had, and I want that. In true Peter fashion, he responds. Peter says to him in verse 20, May your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. The, the Phillips translation of the New Testament actually says it this way. It says, Peter answers him saying, to hell with your money. That's how stern Peter is. He's not going, yeah, that's a bad idea. He's going, to hell with your money. That's how corrupt of a concept it was to try to buy off the Holy Spirit that that is Peter's response. We do see a little bit of of sort of growth in Peter and maturation where he doesn't just send him away with to hell with your money. He actually tries to to speak to, to Simon's heart. 
And he says in 21, he goes, You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. So, obviously, Peter rebukes him, but then he, he does, he implores him to repent. Turn from what you're doing. Like, all is not lost. If possible, you repent, you can be forgiven for this. Because right now, you are in the gall of bitterness. Like, I can't think of a worse place to be than the gall of bitterness. It strikes me as something like that they would pass through in the Lord of the Rings, like, ooh, this is the scene where they have to go through the, the gall of bitterness, or, or Pilgrim's Progress, where, where Christian is stuck in the gall of bitterness and being attacked. Like, you can't think of a much worse place to be. And this is where Peter's saying, Simon, that's where you are. Pray that you can get out of that. And what does Simon do? He answers, well, pray for me to the Lord, and nothing, that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Peter says, Simon, you must pray. Simon goes, well, why don't you pray for me? Because he's still looking at Peter as, as he who has the power rather than his ability to actually go directly to the Lord. There's no acknowledgement of like, Peter saying, no, no, you need to pray. You need the relationship with the Lord to be right. And he's looking at Peter as that conduit of power that can fix it for him. And finally in 25, it says, now when they had testified and spoken, this is Peter and John, the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. So I, I love this verse. It sort of kind of stands on its own. You're going, okay, so yeah, they went home. But they didn't just go home. Because remember, Peter and John, 10 years earlier, they would have been like out of Samaria as fast as they possibly can because that's what every Jewish person would have done. You know, if this is Samaria and you're here and you want to get here, you don't go through. You go around because you don't want to set foot in Samaria because you don't like those people. Peter and John are here in, in the middle of it, and what do they do when, they, when they're going home? They don't take the, the, the fast track home. They stop in villages and towns along the way, and they share Christ. Because now they're looking at Samaritans or these are my brothers and sisters in Christ, potentially. These are not my enemies and aliens. They love them in every city and town on the way home. So there's really five things I want us to see that we, that we can learn about the gospel from this passage. The first is that the gospel is for the whole world. Right? It does not mean every person is going to become a believer, but every tribe and tongue and people and nation are to hear this message. And as we go through the book of Acts, we see this more. But here we're seeing that going beyond the Jewish population to the Samaritan population, and again in a couple chapters, out to the Gentile population, which is really everybody else. And we saw this coming, right? So we, I'm going to flip back to John chapter 4. You have the story of the woman at the well where Jesus is out ahead of his disciples. He gets to the well. He runs into uh, this Samaritan woman, and he approaches her for water, and she goes, ah, I'm a Samaritan. You're a Jew. That's not how it works. That's not how we, we do things. Like, why would you even ask me? Like, you don't like me. 
And, you know, obviously Jesus continues the conversation. It, it comes up in conversation casually that she may or may not be on her first husband. Right? She may or may not be on her second husband. She's, she's actually had a whole bunch of them, and, and now she's with a guy who's not her husband. And she starts to recognize that there's, there's something about Jesus that's different. He knows things that he really has no business knowing, right? She hasn't told him these things. He just knows. So we're going to pick up in verse 19 where she says to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. So Jesus lets us know that there, there is coming a time when the division that exists between the Jew and the Samaritans will be no longer. And we see here the actual fulfillment of that in Acts 8 with the Holy Spirit coming on the Samaritan believers. And the gospel is not limited to geography. It's not limited to people groups. It's not limited to languages. It is genuinely to be offered to all. The gospel sifts, S-I-F-T-S. I always sound like I lisp a little when I say that. Like, sifts. It separates. So we see that there are real believers in the Samaritan church. And in the passage from last week, we see that Philip's preaching. We see the signs and wonders done. We see the joy that comes upon them. We see people being healed. Uh, we know that they are responding in such a way that there are, there are real believers there. But alongside the real believers, there exists Simon. And again, Simon says he believed, but he was not converted. His, his fruit showed that he was not a believer. And what I appreciate about this is that nowhere in the passage does the Bible say, Philip, you screwed up. You're just not a good leader. Like, how did you not notice this Simon character who was a complete fraud among you? It's not laid at Simon's feet. It's not even laid at Peter and John's feet. Simon exposes himself as a fraud, but it's not an indictment on the leadership of the church. You know, looking back, we can see some of these signs. He was following Philip more so than following the Lord. He was amazed at signs and wonders rather than the God who, who actually provided those, those healings. But he tries to buy the power of God. And, you know, when I said, like, I drew encouragement as I was studying it, like, well, how does it make sense that you look at a fraud existing within a church, like, unrecognized and get encouraged by that? Because I, we have a sovereign God that's going to take care of that, and I don't have to worry about it. So Matthew chapter 13, there's two parables I want us to look at quickly. First is the parable of the soils. And, and 
as I was studying Simon, all I could think about was the parable of the soils because he's so clearly one of them to me. And I'm going to pick up in, in chapter 13, verse 3. And he told them many things in parables, saying, A sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seeds fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured them. Other seed fell on rocky ground, where they did not have much soil. And immediately they sprang up, since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched. And since they had no root, they withered away. Other seeds fell among the thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. Other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear. And I just felt like it was so clear to me that Simon is, is this rocky soil, right? He, he hears something, he goes, that works for me. And that's his first problem, it's worked for him, right? But, and he starts to follow Philip, and he's, and he's involved in Philip's ministry in some kind. And then what happens is, is he's tempted, right? The, the power comes along, and he goes, and he tries to grab that power. Let me buy the Holy Spirit. And he chokes out and, and spiritually dies. He, he goes away. And, again, I, I take some encouragement from that in that, Jesus has told us that it is going to be normal that there are multiple places the seed can fall, right? There will be some of us, some of you, that have 160 and 30-fold returns spiritually. And unfortunately, there's going to be some that prove to have been sown on rocky ground. There will be Simons within the church. And that doesn't mean the church failed, it doesn't mean the preaching failed. It doesn't mean the small group ministry failed. It doesn't mean anything other than they are responsible for how they responded to the gospel. And it doesn't mean we don't care. It doesn't mean we don't work on their behalf. We do, right? Read Paul. He would do anything to see people come to faith. But ultimately, he couldn't control that. And we have the parable of the weeds. So we're going to jump down, still in Matthew 13, down to verse 24. He put before them another parable, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then weeds also appeared. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? And he said to them, an enemy has done this. So the servant said to him, then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, no, lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. Let's both grow together until the harvest. And at the harvest time, I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. Again, I draw encouragement from this as I was studying this week in that even though there's going to be weeds among us, right? There's going to be those, those Simons that prove to not really be with us, even though they said they were with us, and they leave us. And I do not mean by that that they go to another Christian church nearby. That is not leaving us. I'm talking about genuinely, truly leaving the faith. God's taking care of that. He's going to separate, 
It is, it is his job to handle that. And I don't have to sit here and stress and try to figure out who might be a weed. I hope it's none of you, but it's possible, right? But it's, it's normal to have a mixed body on Sundays here, right? Our church will be mixed of people who are genuinely of the faith and those that are not. Now, there's a church spiritual that is truly the body of believers of all time that is just made up of, of actual believers, but we will have people who say that they are believers who are not in this midst, and it's not for us to worry about it. Next one is the gospel gives glory to God and not the preacher. Simon's problem was Simon wanted to be the focus of attention, right? He, he liked the signs and wonders because like, if I do that, everyone's going to like me again. Everyone's going to follow me again. If I can buy the power of the Holy Spirit, then I'll be somebody again, right? I, I think of like the rich young ruler who he loved his money. Like that, that's what he wanted, right? He wanted the glory of his wealth, and he was told, Go sell all that you have, give to the poor, then come and follow me. To his credit, he said, I, I don't want to do that. And he walked away. He was at least honest with himself in his rejection. Simon sort of pretends along the way and then just can't handle the heat when it comes when he is face to face with his temptation for power. And he walks away. The gospel doesn't make us bigger. It makes God bigger and us smaller, right? We're, we see the last shall be first and the first shall be last. We see John the Baptist saying of Jesus, he must increase and I must decrease. We see Paul in Philippians 2 saying, even if I am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. This that's the words of a man who's not worried about his, himself. He's worried about those he serves. He's saying, use me up. Exhaust everything I have for the sake of them. Simon said, how can I exploit them? How can I make me big? How can I make me special? The gospel must be received and cannot simply be given. I kind of think about that one for a second. So, I can tell you every word that's in the scripture, but I can't make any of you a Christian because of that, right? I can give you the gospel. I can give you all the words that are in this good book, but that will not make one person a Christian because I can give it to you, but it does nothing until it's received, Simon was given and given and given. I mean, Peter gave him that opportunity. Repent, and if possible, your sins will be forgiven you, but he wouldn't receive it, right? And our proof of that is how he responds to Peter. He says, helps if I go back to Acts. He says, pray for me to the Lord, and nothing of what you said may come upon me. He doesn't actually do the praying himself, right? He goes, no, no, you do this for me. He seeks to Peter intercede on his behalf because he won't receive it himself. He's still looking at Peter as the source of power. I think of, of him here as like very much like Pharaoh, right? We have, remember our, our plagues, and as we're going through our plagues, Moses goes before Pharaoh and says, let my people go. And Pharaoh goes, no. <laughs> and 
Or he might even lie a couple times, go, yeah, sure, we'll let you go. Just kidding. Uh, and then tries to get him back. But what happens is, is then God, through Moses, brings a plague. And the plague is troublesome to Pharaoh. So he calls Moses back in and goes, get rid of the plague. Go to your God and get rid of the plague. And this repeats, right? We go this over and over again. Nowhere along the way does Pharaoh go, maybe I should talk to this God. Maybe I should approach him and get right with him such that I'm not getting these plagues to start with. There's no concept for Pharaoh to actually want to go to the Lord. Simon doesn't say, huh, maybe I should go to the Lord and repent. He goes to Peter and says, no, no, you're God. Tell, tell the Lord to do this. They acknowledge the power of God. They desire the benefits of God, but they want that without the relationship with God. And that never will work. And we, can, we sit here and go, well, glad I don't do that. I would never. No hands, because this might be embarrassing. But we, there's a good chance that many of us have put up Jeremiah 29, 11 somewhere. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope, right? A lot of people really like that verse, because it's like, God's got a wonderful plan for my life. He's going to do all these things for me. We're being Simon by taking that verse completely out of context and just focusing there, right? Because we want what God will do for us and without acknowledging what God has asked of us, there's no counting the cost. You know, you don't see the people putting up Jeremiah 29, 11 right next to the sell everything you have, give it to the poor and follow me or, you know, the you know, foxes have dens, but the Son of Man will have no place to, to lay his head. You know, you don't see those verses on somewhere because we don't want that. We want all the blessings that the Lord will give us. Right? He's got a wonderful plan for my life. We get a little Simon-like when we do that. We don't necessarily want what God has asked of us. But we want what God has promised us. And finally, the gospel is, and I think this might be the most important one, the gospel is about you being bought, not your buying it. So Simon tries to buy the power of being an apostle, being an evangelist, so that he can exploit the power of the Lord for his own gain. But when, when I read scripture, I see all sorts of places that say that, that I was bought, that you were bought, but no place where it says we buy the Lord. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. 1 Corinthians 7, 23. You were bought with a price. Do not become bondservants of men. 2 Peter 2, 1. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you, whom you will who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And then we see verses with this idea of, of redeeming or redemption, which is a, a buying, a paying for, a, a rescuing. Galatians 3, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. Galatians 4, God sent his son to redeem those who are under the law. Titus 2, Christ gave himself up for us to redeem us from all lawlessness. 
There is nowhere in Scripture where we buy the Lord, but all kinds of places that say that he bought us. He paid for us. We no longer have debt. He's given us all. The whole story of the gospel is Jesus redeeming us, making payment for us. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We were strangers and aliens, but now we've been brought near by the blood of Christ. So, in closing, I'd ask that Simon serve as a good warning to us. That we would examine ourselves, we test ourselves to see if we're in the faith, we would check our hearts. The Bible's clear, our hearts are deceptive and wicked. They lie, it lies to us. Examine it. Do we have a desire to be great? Do we have a desire to make a name for ourselves? Do we do things in the church to be noticed and to get recognition for it? Or do we do it to genuinely serve the Lord? Do we actually measure the cost of following him or are we only seeking after the benefits? As Peter warned Simon to pray, I warn us to pray. That is, if there's any Simon-like spirit at all within us, that we would find that, that we would acknowledge it, that we would forsake it and root it out. That the Lord would forgive the intent of our hearts. So let us not be foolish like Simon. Let us not put it on someone else to pray for us. Let us not put the power in the pastor to fix us. Let us not put the power in the elders to fix us, but to go to the Lord to get rid of that spirit. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Uh, we thank you for, for a leadership like, like, like Philip's, like Peter and John, their boldness. Um, Lord, we thank you that you loved us. We thank you that while we are still sinners, Christ died for us, how we we were literally aliens. We were strangers to the covenant of promise. But with the great love with which you loved us, you, you reconciled us to yourself. You brought us near. You, you've, you've made us heirs and fellow heirs with Christ, uh, Lord. And, and we have a, a promised eternity being sealed by your spirit that is just unfathomable. Lord, you literally say it's more than we could ever ask or imagine. That's what's a promise to us. And we're told that there's a cost to following you, Lord. And may we measure that cost. May we acknowledge that there are things we need to forsake. There's things we need to turn our back on that we need to be willing to do for you. Lord, show us that. May we never be like Simon. May we be like Philip who goes to a different land and shares your, your, your word. Or Peter and John doing it faithfully in their, their local church. Lord, may we be like that. Uh, Lord, we... We, we, we want a church that, that loves you, that we acknowledge that there will be weeds, there will be Simons, there will be things, those in our midst that aren't really of us. But may we love them, may we work to, to convert them, that if possible their sins may be forgiven. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.